Alright, we're going to read the remaining portion of Luke 1. So grab your Bibles and go ahead and stand and let's, let's finish reading that chapter. We'll be starting up again in chapter 1, verse 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will count me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. For his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son, When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise a child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts 
till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Please be seated. All right, we have Luke chapter 1 now, right? Everybody got it all? Uh, all 80 verses of it, right? I thought we would uh, split that up this morning uh, to help with your listening. Uh, and so a lot of stuff here in, in Luke chapter 1. So as you might imagine, uh, we're going to be doing more of a flyover of Luke 1 as opposed to verse by verse. Some of you saying Amen. Right? We're not going to do a verse by verse this morning in Luke chapter 1, but we'll get a flyover picture of Luke chapter 1. So with that being said, why don't you join me in a word of prayer and we'll get going. Father, you sent your Son here into the world, that through him you might save the world. And Father, this morning we are grateful for your love toward us in sending your own Son while we were yet sinners. This Son of yours came to serve as our sin substitute. We see the Bible tells us that he took upon himself in the flesh our sins when he died on that cross. And Lord, you've given to us four gospel records to wash over us, to to teach us, and to show us who this son of yours really is. And as we open Luke's good news account of Jesus, I pray that we would see it anew. That we would take in from this opening chapter all that you have for us. Father, you've made us... That we might know you. And the arrival of Christ to earth is wonderful for us to see as you've intended it for us to see it. And Father, I pray that we would recognize and see Jesus having come here to earth. That we would recognize that it would register within us that you sent your only begotten son here to earth. And I pray, Lord, that we would cherish this gift that you've given. And that every heart here would truly, as the hymn writer says... Prepare him room that he might come and make his home in our hearts. So, Father, as your word is preached this morning, I pray that hope in Christ and all those who may be listening to this message in days to come, I pray that we all would receive our King. From heaven to earth, he has come. And back in the day, we see from the scriptures that this was heralded as joy to the world. May it be so in our hearts, yet this day, we pray this in the name of the one who redeemed us and the one who visited us, Jesus. Amen. This morning, I'd like to ask you a question. Are you ready For Christmas. Some of you are going, oh, that's a terrible question. Some of you are going, I've heard that question. Are you ready for Christmas? I I had a little one has a hand up, says, acknowledging, yes, I'm ready for Christmas. When people ask you that question, and they've asked, I've, I've had that question asked of me already several times here in the month of December. Sometimes I wonder, what do they mean when they ask the question? Anybody ever thought that? What what really is driving the question? There seems to be a question behind the question. What do they mean? Well, let me ask you this. How do you typically respond to the question? Are you courteous and go along with what you think they mean when they ask the question? Or do you actually get into details about 
how wrong that question might seem to be. Are you ready for Christmas? I'd like to ask the question in maybe a couple of different ways, at least emphasizing a couple of different things in that question. Are you ready for Christmas? If we emphasize Christmas and, and emphasizing Christmas, I'd like to just maybe uh, by way of illustration. How many of you in here grew up playing, and some of you probably still do, hide and seek? Anybody? Anybody play hide and seek? Okay, great game. I enjoyed the game. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful game. Now, part of the hide-and-seek game is you have some people who go and hide, right? And then you have the one person, or multiple if you have a large group, that are seeking. Now, the person who's seeking usually is uh, secluded somewhere, right? He, he or she is secluded, and they are hiding, and they oftentimes are counting out loud to 30. And when they get done counting, they usually say something like this. Ready or not, here I come. Ready or not, here I come. I'm coming. And so if you're the one who's hiding, you know at that point, if you don't have a hiding spot, you just better go somewhere because they're coming. They're coming. I got to go somewhere. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking that sort of in the same way, December 25th is a date on the calendar that rolls around once every year. It's a day we know as Christmas. And it's a day that's cherished and it's celebrated in a variety of different ways. And as I was looking on the calendar, I noticed that, and if you didn't know this, you have 12 days. 12 days until this Christmas day. And unless the Lord returns or something happens to you in between those 12 days you will once again experience another December 25. It's coming. Ready or not, it's coming. The day is coming. And so I was thinking about being ready for Christmas. I was also thinking about that, emphasizing the word ready. Are you ready? Are you ready for Christmas? And, and I think oftentimes we translate that to, have you purchased your gifts? Have you wrapped your presents yet, right? When people ask that question, that tends to be probably the leaning of where they're going. You see, being ready for Christmas for the world has become an exercise in getting all of your checklists done before December 25th. But what is it really to be ready for Christmas? If readiness is called for, in what way ought we be ready? Are we readying ourselves for a date on the calendar? To what extent is the follower of Jesus called to be ready? And for what purpose and for whom are we to be ready? You see, Christmas time for the believer in Jesus shines the light on Christ's first coming to earth. It's captured in the Incarnation whereby God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to save the world from her sin. Christmas time is a time of, of Advent. It's the glorious celebration of God coming down to earth in the form of man, to do for man what man could never do. It's the arrival of Jesus from heaven to earth. Christmas reminds us that Jesus saves. 
Christmas renews our minds about the entry of Jesus into the world. And it ought to awaken, friends, in us a spirit of gratitude. Not just that he came to earth, but that he came to live and die and redeem us from the sins that had once held us captive. You see, one of the problems of the commercialization of Christmas is that we hardly get past the birth of the Christ child in the manger. His coming doesn't end with a baby in the manger. You see, his coming points forward to what he will do, to what, in fact, we see from the scriptures he already did at the cross. He saved us, he redeemed us, he bought us with his precious blood, and he's called us together as one body to glorify his name all over the earth. That's what he's called us to do. Are you ready for Christmas? You know, as we look at these gospel leads in the four gospel records... I believe Luke's gospel begins with a very similar question. Now, Luke doesn't ask the question verbatim, of course. But a slight modification, I believe, would be appropriate. Instead of, are you ready for Christmas? I believe Luke would say, are you prepared for Christ? Are you prepared for Christ? Perhaps this gospel lead ought to be readily at hand for the remainder of this Christmas season. I mean, think about the implication of Luke's question versus the world's question. Instead of getting ready for a date on the calendar, Luke is calling his reader to prepare for Christ himself. Instead of purchasing gifts as the sign of being ready... Luke is preparing our hearts to know with certainty this Jesus of the scriptures. He's pointing his reader to a unique spiritual gift given by God himself to the world. A gift that truly keeps on giving for it is eternal in nature. John chapter 17 verse 3 says, this is eternal life that they may know you. This is the prayer of Jesus to his father. This is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and whom? Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Christmas is one day on the calendar. Luke has written a gospel record good for each day on the calendar. The implications of the gospel are intended to bear daily fruit, friends. The gospel record of Luke manifests the necessary preparations for the coming Christ Are you prepared for Christ? I'd like you to think about and consider that question this morning. Are you, as you sit here in the chair this morning, prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice I didn't ask, are you prepared for a date on the calendar? I ask, are you prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ? That, I believe, is the question Luke is asking as he begins his gospel. That, I believe, is the central question. And going off of the theme of leads, our gospel leads, I believe the lead here in Luke chapter 1 might go something like this. Luke, in his gospel, has written an orderly account 
This is an orderly account of the gospel concerning all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Written for the purpose of instruction in the faith, addressed primarily to one named Theophilus. And where did I come up with that? I didn't make it up. I got it from Acts chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I got it from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It's an orderly account concerning all that Jesus began to do and teach. In fact, it's worth the time to look at Acts because Acts is part two of Luke's writings. Notice he says in verse one of Acts one, the former account I made, the former account is reference to Luke's gospel, friends. Okay? The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. There it is. All that Jesus began to do and teach. That, that right there gives us the understanding, the purpose of that first volume of Luke's, moved by the Spirit. All that he began to do and teach. This is about Jesus. Notice we talked last week about the emphasis that John had, making sure we understood who this Jesus is. Let's be real clear. All four gospel writers are about the who. They're all about telling us who this Jesus is. They all go about it a little differently. And Luke is going to make sure that we are prepared, just as he is going to make sure that this most excellent Theophilus is prepared to receive and to know with certainty the things that he's been instructed about Jesus. Are you prepared for Christ? I'd like to look at that question from three different perspectives this morning. Again, I talked about the flyover. It's going to be a flyover. But I'm hoping to cover what's there in chapter 1. The three perspectives I'd like for us to look at are perspectives from Luke himself. And we'll look at those first four verses. Luke gives us four verses here as he's moved by the Spirit. Four verses that give us a little bit of insight into why he's writing. Into the who behind his writing. And so he's, he's preparing us. He's giving us an introduction. So we have Luke's perspective And then there's going to be Zechariah's and Elizabeth's perspective. And then we'll see Mary's perspective. Luke highlights Mary's perspective. And we'll see next week in looking at Matthew chapter 1 that Matthew is going to highlight Joseph's perspective. Okay? So those are the three perspectives I'd like to look at as we think about the question, are you prepared for Christ? Are you prepared for Christ? First of all, as we think about Luke and his perspective, looking at those first four verses, I think it's important for us to understand that that Luke is drawn to write down an orderly account. Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. The comprehensive detail in this gospel spotlights Jesus. Luke is very meticulous in what he's writing. He's very detailed. He's very orderly. He writes also of the Christ whose light has come into the world for all men. His light has come into the world for all men. Look with me, if you will, in Isaiah chapter 60. I'd like to read the first three verses of Isaiah 60. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. 
but the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. Verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The Gentiles shall come to your light. Luke is writing as a Gentile and he's speaking this good news. He's sharing this good news and saying essentially, this good news is available to all men. It's available to all. In fact, he says pretty much verbatim in Luke chapter 2. When he's talking about the shepherds and this good news has been given to all. In the city of David, a child has been born. We see also that Luke and his perspective, as we're thinking about Luke and his perspective, being prepared for Christ, he's writing from a discipleship perspective. He says that you, verse 4, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. He's writing this gospel to instruct Theophilus, listen, and you, Theophilus, and you, me. He's writing to instruct all of us, the listener, the reader, in the good news message of this Jesus that he knows. But notice, not only is he writing from a discipleship perspective, Luke is also writing with high credibility. His source of credibility is off the charts. Look at verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning, from the beginning, from the beginning of the time when Jesus was here on earth, right? Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. That's what he refers to them as. Eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses, people who saw something firsthand. They saw what Jesus was doing. They saw Jesus walking. They saw Jesus preaching and teaching and healing. They saw him. And Luke is saying, my source for what I'm writing here comes from these eyewitnesses and comes from these ministers of the word, the ones who were also proclaiming the name of Jesus. That's where I've gotten my, my information in part because we know that he receives his information also from whom? The Holy Spirit. Because Luke, just like many of these other writers who pen what we have before us in the scriptures, he's been moved by the Holy Spirit. He's one of the holy men of God, moved by the Spirit, to write what we have here before us. So just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. I want you to note that Luke is not only the beloved physician of the Apostle Paul. Colossians 4.14 as Colossians is coming to a close, uh, Paul there in his letter to the church at Colossae refers to Luke as his beloved physician. A beloved physician, a doctor. We oftentimes refer to him as Dr. Luke. He is a doctor by trade. Keep that in mind as you read this gospel. But he is also an excellent historian as well. Because you see, he's also the writer of Acts. And he's the one that's used by God to write the history of the early church. He, he says that he had here in, in chapter 1 of Luke, he had perfect understanding of all things from the first. And you might ask, well, how is that so? Well, I believe that the words were inspired words given to him by the Holy Spirit first and foremost. Coupled with these first-hand accounts 
from these eyewitnesses and these ministers of the word who share their testimonies of being with Jesus. And so Luke is but one of the holy men moved by the Spirit. He's writing inspired by the witness of the Spirit. I believe Luke is also, as we think about his preparation for Christ and his writing here in Luke chapter 1 in the entirety of this gospel, he writes out of compassion and concern. Luke writes out of compassion and concern. He says in verse 1, inasmuch as many have taken the task of writing down the history of what Jesus accomplished and fulfilled during his brief stay on earth. You know, and as I was thinking about verse 1, and I was thinking about how today, writers today perhaps would pass on writing about this subject. Why? Because if they know there's a lot of other people writing about this subject, sometimes they don't want to necessarily put their work in because everybody else has already written about this subject. It's already been exhausted. Luke tells us that there were many who undertook this task of writing, chronicling the events of Christ. Many, many had done so. Luke writes, I believe he's moved by compassion for his young friend in the faith. Most excellent, Theophilus. Listen, he cares enough of Theophilus' spiritual well-being to write a clear, orderly account of Jesus. This care and concern for Theophilus is manifested in how the gospel itself is written. For Jesus is what we see here in this gospel. His humanity is emphasized greatly in this gospel. And while John marks the deity of Christ, Luke brings to the forefront Jesus' humanity. His humanity. Friends, it's important. Both are true. Both are needful. Jesus, the God, man. Fully God. Fully man. John emphasizes the deity of Christ. Luke is raising up to our attention the very humanity of this Jesus coming to the world. You see, we see in this gospel of Luke... Christ's concern for the lost, Luke 15, right? We see his concern for the marginal in the society. We see Luke spending time in his gospel talking about how Jesus ministers to the poor, how he ministers to the sick, how he ministers to the women in particular. Those during the day who were on the margins. We see Luke giving us insight into the life of Jesus That Luke is not only concerned about Theophilus, his friend, and making sure he's certain of this truth of who Jesus is, but Luke actually gives us, from Jesus' perspective, his own care and concern for people. It bleeds through in this gospel. So, Luke, are you prepared for Christ? He writes of Christ. He has associated and mingled with a crowd of eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who have shared, as the hymn writer said, the old, old story with him. He's moved by the Holy Spirit to write of this Jesus. He's deemed not only a beloved physician, but the scripture record also says that this man, Luke, is a fellow laborer. We see that in Philemon, verse 24. He's a fellow laborer. This Luke is ministering alongside Paul on his journeys. 
He's participating with Paul in the adventure of a lifetime. He's preaching and he's teaching the good news message of Jesus Christ. Listen, here's what this means. He not only wrote about this man, Jesus, but the scriptures testify that he also lived a life for Jesus. He didn't just write about him. He lived it out. He was not a man writing from the lofty ivory towers, secluded far away from the realities of life. But he was a man engaged in the gospel himself. And he seems, as you read, he seems to really believe what he writes. And he expresses his belief in this Jesus by how he himself lived. Oh, friends, isn't that instructive for us? It's not about how much we know of him. It's, truth be told, what we know of him ought to translate into our walk. He who says he abides in him ought himself. We are under obligation, friends, to walk as Christ himself walked. To walk in the light as he is in the light. So we have Luke's perspective. I believe here we keep going in Luke chapter 1, the flyover, and we see another perspective, and that's that of Zacharias and Elizabeth. In verses 5 through 25, we see the first segment of Zacharias and Elizabeth's perspective. And Luke begins his account of the gospel of Jesus Christ by recounting the lives of this priestly family from Judea, Zacharias and Elizabeth. The Bible tells us that both were righteous before God. They were walking in all the ordinances of the Lord, blameless, So what we have here, Luke is presenting right out of the gate as we think about the gospel lead. How does he begin talking about this gospel of Jesus Christ? He begins by bringing to our attention the account of Zacharias and Elizabeth. A godly couple. Godly couple. Seems like, from what we can tell, godly marriage. Solid couple in the Lord. And then you get to verse 7. But they had no child. But they had no child. Now to have no child back in the day was a really difficult thing. Especially for the woman. You might recall Hannah. She had no children. And it was doubly painful for her in that she had a rival named Penina who kept provoking her, why? Simply because of the absence of her children. Hannah didn't have any children. Penina, at the opening of 1 Samuel, has several. You see, back in the day, great shame marked the women who could not bear seed for their husbands and family lines. Elizabeth, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 7, was barren, and add to that... Both were well advanced in years. And I read that both were well advanced in years and it reminded me, it took me back a little bit further. It took me back to Abraham and Sarah. You remember Abraham and Sarah? A hundred year old, 90 year old, remember that? That's pretty well advanced in years. So here's the thing. What we're reading is not something new. We're reading about something that prior to Luke chapter one has happened. I also want to bring to your attention, not only has it happened, but Zechariah and Elizabeth are godly people. He's a priest. She's of the daughters of Aaron. 
I would imagine that both of these individuals knew about Hannah. I would imagine that both of them knew about Abraham and Sarah. Keep that in mind. When this context, Luke tells then the account of Zacharias serving in the temple of the Lord. And his lot came to burn incense. They took turns. His lot came. He's burning incense. And as you might imagine, this got Zacharias' time and attention. He goes in to do his job. And you know, you read the text and you get the idea that he is showing up for work as normal. Nothing out of the ordinary on this particular day. It sort of reminded me of, of, of the day that David woke up and his dad said, hey, I want you to go to the front lines and deliver the, this food to them and see that they're okay. David woke up that day and I'm sure he was just thinking that it was going to be just another day. Well, he comes to find out in that day it was not going to be just a regular ordinary day. I think Zacharias, he's going in, he's going in to burn, he's going to do his duty before the Lord, serve his Lord. This is his regular work day. He shows up for work on this day to carry out his prescribed duty. And Luke chapter 1 verse 11 says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. As I think about Zacharias and Elizabeth and I think about their being prepared for Christ. I can't help but see the application for each one of us here today. Because I just want to let you know from, from what we read in the scripture. The Lord is, is not in the business of only showing up inside the walls of a building on a Sunday morning. I believe the Lord desires to show up in your life, to make himself known in your life throughout your week. Here's a godly couple, as we'll see here in just a moment. This husband, Zacharias, the assumption from the text is that he had been praying for some time that his wife would be able to have a child. He shows up, and in the place where seems like he doesn't expect it, now here's the question. Do you expect God to meet you somewhere, anywhere, or do you think God's only going to show up in a certain place? Do you think God's just going to make himself known to you here while you have the word open before you and while the word's being preached? Or do you expect God to meet you at your workplace? Do you expect God to meet you inside your own household? Do you expect God to intervene in your life? Why well, read this? And I, that's just something that it's hard to, hard to miss. Because I don't believe Zacharias, and we'll get to Mary in just a moment. I don't believe either one of them knew that the angel of the Lord is going to show up today. I better get things ready. So here in verse 11, the angel of the Lord appears, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. As you might imagine, this got his attention. text says, fear fell on him. He was troubled. I want you to notice the four initial things that come from the angel. Number one, do not be afraid. Common phrase that always is put out because when an angel shows up, that's our first inclination is shock. Um, well, wow, you know, we don't know what to say. Do not be afraid. There's a word of comfort here. Do not be afraid. Secondly, your prayer is heard. Your prayer is heard. That's my assumption from the text. The fact that the angel says your prayer is heard leads us to believe that Zacharias was doing what? 
He had been praying for a son, a child. He'd been praying. And he says, the angel, your prayer is heard. Third, he says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Fourth, he says, not only is he going to bear you a son, but gives the name. His name's going to be what? John. And he goes on then to describe the life of this child and his purpose for coming into the world. You know, and as I was reading about the purpose for John's life, it reminded me of what we talked about last week in John chapter 1. And it was just solidifying that there was a man sent by God whose name was John. You see, John just gives us the big picture. There was this man sent from God. You read Luke chapter 1, and no doubt he's sent from God. He came via this angel and this announcement Sent by God. Look at verses 16 and 17. The angel is describing this son to be John. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, that's the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah, the prophet Elijah. Again, he's talking to Zacharias. Zacharias, a godly man who would have known of Elijah. And he's now being told that his son is going to go forward in the spirit and power of Elijah. Think about this as dad. Angel shows up, scares you completely out of your mind because you're at your work. You think you're just going to go about work as normal. He shows up. He tells you, I've heard your prayer. You're going to have a son. His name's John. And by the way, here's what he's going to do. Here's who he's going to be. Here's what his life is going to be about. The spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And here's the phrase. If you underline in your Bible, mark this, write this down. Here it is. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what John was going to be about. He was going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Are you prepared for Christ? I believe the Lord right now, even in the infant stages, is preparing Zacharias and preparing Elizabeth for this very question. Are you prepared for Christ? Zacharias, upon hearing this heaven-sent news, he inserts a question and a follow-up comment in verse 18. One of those questions and comments that perhaps later on he wished he hadn't said. He asks the question, how can this be? How can I know? I'm an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. Gabriel then in verse 19 seems to rebuke him for his unbelief. I want you to mark that. Note that in the text. The rebuke comes in the form of Zacharias being mute for the next nine months. The length of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Why? Why? We need to understand this. The text tells us early on that he was a godly man. So was his wife. 
A godly man. A godly man. Here we have a godly man who didn't receive the words of the Lord's messenger as delivered. I think that needs to at least be brought out on the table. A man who knew of Moses, a man who knew of the prophets and how the Lord worked through them, and yet he failed to receive the words from God for himself. Oh, friends, this is so instructive because we can know about God. We can take up the word and we can look up verse and chapter and we can have a reference. But when the Lord is speaking to us, do we hear what he has to say? Or do we question? Do we do what Zacharias does here? And simply, we don't believe. We don't believe. Because we're looking at our reality. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty old. We're both pretty advanced in years, Lord. I, I don't know if you've got the right situation here. Remember, he's the potter and we're the what? Clay. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on Zacharias here. But I do want to point to his lack of faith in this particular portion of the text. You know, we can know the stories of Jesus, we can know his love for us, and yet we can operate lot, much like Zach, Zacharias, without faith. The text isn't completed, though. You see, because I think the Lord is preparing Zacharias and Elizabeth for something great. Listen, he's preparing them for something, I believe, even greater than having their own child. How many of you remember when your first child was born? Remember that? Remember that time? I see, oh, you know what? I asked the question. This is great because I get to see all of your faces. When I asked that question, you know what I saw? Smile. That's what comes to mind oftentimes when we think about the first go around, our first child. It's joy. It brings joy. I believe during those mute months, nine months worth, the Lord, I believe the Lord was doing a work in Zacharias' heart. And, you know, we think of trials and how they come in a variety of ways. But I was thinking about how not speaking for nine months would be quite a challenge. Imagine not being able to talk for nine months. Nine months. Nine long months not being able to talk. And not just being able to voice, not, not voicing our opinions, our thoughts, etc., but nine months of contemplating how I got in this situation. I didn't respond as I should have to the messenger of the Lord. Nine months to think about it. Nine months. I believe over that nine-month period, the Lord did a heart work on this man, Zacharias. When he comes out of the temple, the Bible says that the people are in awe that Zacharias cannot speak. You get the idea that he's trying to do hand motions. And, you know, and they're, they're looking at him and, and they realize that their conclusion is that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And so they're, they're clued in that something happened in there out of the ordinary. And truly it did. He tried to communicate, but the Bible says he was speechless, verse 22. So he returns home, and shortly thereafter, the Bible says that Elizabeth conceives, and she hides herself for five months. She communes, you know, as I was thinking about that verse, 
I believe for Elizabeth, this was an intimate time between her and the Lord. You know, you read the, the verse, and she's grateful. One of the things you see there in the text, she's grateful for the Lord. She says, to take away my reproach among people. She's rejoicing in the Lord. She's praising him for this wonderful gift of having a baby. Now, if you fast forward in the text for just a moment to verse 57, we'll, we'll pick up the account because it's separated here. So what we have is we have an intro and we have the birth announcement of John followed by the birth announcement of Christ followed by some interchange with Mary and Elizabeth and Mary's song. And then we get to the actual arrival of John. I'm going to skip there for just a moment. Verse 57. And that's where we jump back to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Time has now come for her to deliver her baby boy who is to be named John, according to the angel. Neighbors and friends have gathered together. And we see there in verse 58, when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Don't bypass that because verse 58, that they rejoice with her, applies to what the angel said in verse 14. Look at verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. It's happening, right? It's happening. They've gathered together. There's rejoicing going on. On the eighth day, the day in which this child was circumcised, many were gathered together. An assumption was that this child was going to be named Zacharias, after all, that's what the father's name was, so we'll name him Zacharias. Wrong. Elizabeth says, no, his name's going to be John, and they were appalled, shocked. Well, there's no John in your family. How could you name him John? So they go, and surely Zacharias has got something to say about this. So they go, and they try and get Zacharias' attention to this, and Zacharias, remember, still can't speak. So they bring a tablet, and he writes on that tablet. Remember what he writes? His name is John. And it was at that point when a few things happened. Everyone is shocked. The Bible says they all marveled. How could this be? And while they're wondering about all of this, the Bible tells us that Zacharias' mouth was opened. His tongue was loosed. I want you to notice the first thing that came out. Praise. He praised God. And see, I think that the first thing that comes out is significant in what God was doing in Zacharias over that nine-month period. Because I think, I'm convinced of it as I read the text. He praised God and he realized... What God had done, he realized his own sinfulness and not believing. His first response is praise to God. And news about what the Lord had done was spreading all over the place. And the question that was circulating I found interesting. Here's the question that was circulating. What kind of child will this be? What kind of child will this be? The angel has already told John what kind of child this is going to be. And now the people are all wondering, what kind of child is this going to be? Both Zacharias and Elizabeth said his name's John. That's pretty odd. And they're all wondering now what's going to happen. 
And so we see here, following this, this segment in 66, which ends with, and the hand of the Lord was with him. The hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 67 then, the follow-up. His father, Zacharias, was filled with what? Filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The end of Luke chapter 1, friends, is not the birth of John, but the praise from John's father, Zacharias. As a priest, he was accustomed to going before God on behalf of the people. And now the priest, having recently had his tongue loosed to speak, is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. And I get the feeling that praise is overflowing at this point. And I'm grateful to Luke that he includes the overflowing praise of Zacharias right here in the text. The Lord has dealt with him as a loving father. And has blessed him with a son who will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And the prophecy really encompasses two parts. The first part is praise to his God. But the second part is his Blessing upon his newborn son. Look at verse 76. And you, child. You you almost picture him holding his child in his arms looking at him. And you, child. You will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. To give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. This son of whom he speaks is going to go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. And three things he says here that I think are important to note. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. To give light to those who sit in darkness. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Oh, this is a beautiful passage, prophecy from John's father, Zacharias. And I was thinking about, again, the question, are you prepared for Christ? And and thinking about this godly couple. Is this godly couple prepared for Christ? Friends, we need to understand they are the parents of the one who would go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. They are living out what it is to train up a man, a young man, in the ways of the Lord. Can you imagine what it would have been like to raise John as your son, knowing that his primary calling in life was to get people ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, that's not a far cry, I believe, from what the Lord's called every single one of us as parents to be doing. To prepare and train up our children in such a way that they make ready the people that are around them in their sphere of influence. To prepare them for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That they talk and speak and act in faith, talking about this Jesus who is going to come. I believe they're prepared I believe they are in the process of being prepared. They come from a priestly family. And now a relative is about to be involved in the mix. The same angel Gabriel sent on another divine errand just six months after his announcement to Zacharias. Look back at verse 26. Back verse 26. 
And we see Mary's perspective here in 28, 26 through 38. Let's keep in mind who Mary is. Mary is a virgin. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph, who's of the house of David. And Gabriel comes down to Galilee, to the city of Nazareth, to pay her a visit. A visit that many today still talk about. For it was this visitation that delivered the good news to Mary. This was a visit that changed Mary's life for sure, right? It's hard hard to doubt that. It changed her life completely. But this was a visit that was going to alter the course of history. Not just Mary's life. Your life. My life. God was coming down to earth and was going to arrive via the womb of a virgin named Mary. The angel shows up, as he oftentimes does, uninvited. Uninvited. Mary wasn't getting the house ready for the angelic visit. He shows up. And he does that in both instances here with Zacharias and also with Mary. We assume that he's showing up at her home. We don't know. The details aren't necessarily there. But that's, that's my assumption as I read the text. And the angel tells Mary a few things, just like he tells Zacharias a few things up front. First of all, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, he says. And he says, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, Mary. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now the angel, there's certain similarities, isn't there? Shows up, do not be afraid. Tells him they're going to have a son, Zacharias. Tells him what the name of that son is going to be. Shows up to Mary, do not be afraid. Says you're going to have a son. And says here's what the name of that son is going to be. And then he goes on, as he did with Zacharias. The angel goes on to deliver the course of her son's life. Who he is, what he will do. And then she asks a question. Truly, one might think about, well, what's the difference between Zacharias' question and Mary's question? You ever thought about that in the text? Did you read it? Well, why did Zacharias get, he he got pushed on the mute button for nine months. Mary asks a question and she's okay. What happened? How's that so? Well, While I may not know 100% why it's so, I do believe that the text, the context, helps us understand. I believe that the heart of Zacharias was not in the right place because the Bible does say it was his unbelief. And with Mary, she's asking what I think for many of us would have been a very common question to ask because she's going to conceive, and in Mary's mind, she asks the question, how is this going to be possible since I do not yet know a man? Well, the the Bible actually confirms for us that Mary's heart was in the right place. Because if we just fast forward for just a moment to verse 45, and she's meeting with Elizabeth in this context. Elizabeth says, blessed is she who, what? Believed. So you see, Mary's question here is not out of an unbelief or doubting what the angel is presenting to her. This is a very practical question that I think was an innocent question. And it's a question that Gabriel himself answers. Leads us to believe that it was asked out of a right heart. Okay? So, 
She asks the question, wondering how she's going to have a baby when she's not yet pregnant. Doesn't know a man yet. The Holy Spirit, that's what it says in verse 35. Angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born. Listen to this. This is an incredible thing. If you're, if you're Mary, you're young. You're, you know, a lot of sources tell us she's a young teenager. And now she's hearing that this Holy One to be born is going to be called the Son of God. The Son of God. If that wasn't startling enough news, Mary then is informed about her relative, Elizabeth. And barren Elizabeth is no longer barren, it seems. According to the angel, she has conceived a son in her old age. And she's six months along. And then look what Gabriel says in verse 37. This is one of the highlights of the chapter. As... If Mary has any questions or doubts about the Holy Spirit overshadowing her, empowering her to bring forth a son, if Mary has any doubts about Elizabeth, her relative, being barren and now being six months along, if Mary has any doubts there, I love what the angel does here because he reassures her. And I believe, friends, he's reassuring each one of you here today with these words in verse 37. He says in verse 37, For with God, nothing will be impossible. With God, nothing will be impossible. And I want you to notice Mary's response of faith. I love this. Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Friends, we need to write that one down. We need to carry that one with us. We need to practice this one. Let it be to me according to your word, Lord. Let it be. Let it be. And the angel departed from her. We see that next section in 39 through 45 is Mary's visit. The text, I love the word that's used there. Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste. With haste. When you hastily do something, what are you doing? I'm doing it quickly. Why would she be doing this quickly? Huh? Any ideas? Because of what she just heard. She just heard that her relative Elizabeth is with child. And she just heard firsthand from the angel that she herself is going to have a child. And not only is she going to have any ordinary child, but she's going to have Jesus. That's his name. She already knows his name. She's going to have Jesus. We were talking about this earlier this week about, you know, in our culture today, we have ultrasounds that tell us whether we have a boy or a girl. Well, back in the day, they didn't need an ultrasound. It was a a substitute for the ultrasound. Angel shows up, tells me, you're going to have a boy. You're going to have... Right? And he tells them what, he's going to, what they're going to have. And so Mary is excited, and with haste she goes. And, and friends, I, I imagine a great celebration. Lots of conversation about, listen, about things of the Lord. Lots of talk and speculation about what their sons would be doing. How their lives would intersect in the days ahead. I believe there were several exchanges of, you won't believe what happened to me. You won't believe what I just heard. And for three months, Mary spent time with Elizabeth, the Bible says. For three months. Three months. Can you imagine the conversations over that three-month period, friends? We see in verses 46 through 56, on the heels of the news and on the heels of her visit, We see 
what's typically referred to as the Song of Mary. 46 through 56. A response from Mary and Elizabeth's time together. Those words in verse 45. I believe there is a connection between 45 and what she tells Mary and what the response is there in that song right in the next verse. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Oh, I'm sure that bolstered Mary's faith. It encouraged her greatly to hear that. And out of that, one of the things we see is a similarity between Zacharias and Mary is what? Praise. Praise. And Mary just offers up, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he's regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Not blessed in the way of putting me up on a pedal as though someone should be worshiping me. Not that kind of blessed. But blessed because God gave something to me out of his storehouse of goodness. Her soul magnifies the Lord. Notice she's not lifting up herself here. Her soul is stirred to praise the one who allowed her to be a part of his divine plan. She says in that song, holy is his name. Verse 49. In verse 50, his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Friends, that includes you and me. Those who fear him. Verses 54 and 55. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. There it is again. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Is Mary prepared for Christ? She's preparing herself, listen, to be the mother of the son of God. And Joseph, as we'll see next week in Matthew 1, also receives a visit from an angelic messenger. Three perspectives. Luke, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and Mary. I'd like to ask the question, perhaps the question a little bit more pointed to you now. Are you prepared for Christ? As you sit here today, are you prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you concerned with knowing the certainty of the things that you've been taught? Have you believed in the name of Jesus and received him into the inn of your heart? We see in Luke chapter 2, there's no room in the inn. And I would ask you this morning, is there no room in the end of your heart for this one named Jesus? Are you making preparations for him to come and make his home in your heart? Some of you haven't yet done that. He's coming back, friends, a second time. The Bible tells us this. This time to judge the hearts of men. By a righteous standard. It's a perfect righteous standard of Jesus himself. But here's the good news. The one who is doing the judging is Jesus himself. He's the mediator. He's the one who's judging the hearts 
of men. That judgment has been granted to him by his father, John says in his gospel. So we look at this Christmas season. And yes, it's true that Christmas for many people is a day on the calendar. But I would hope that those of us in Christ would come to understand that Christmas as a day on the calendar falls woefully short of what the Lord would have us think and do and react to as it pertains to the arrival of Christ. I would want to encourage you this morning as we close Luke chapter 1 to remember that not only do we celebrate his arrival the first time, but we are also looking forward to his second arrival. Friends, he's coming again. And the question I just would like to leave you with is, will you be prepared for Jesus when he comes? And in the interim, will you be about doing what we read about here in Luke 1? In particular, what we read about Luke himself. That Luke didn't just concern himself with writing an orderly account, but we see in the life of Luke, a life lived out. He's living this gospel. In the interim, while we still have breath, let us also live out this gospel And not just know of it, not just know pieces of it, not just have facts here. But let us spend our days living out this gospel of Jesus Christ. Can we do that? Can we commit to doing that? Is he worth it? I hope so, friends. Because you see, God gave His all gave his son that you might have life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this orderly account. We thank you for this instruction in the faith that Luke has provided for us in your word as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for these perspectives in Luke 1. I thank you for how Luke begins teaching us about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for this account of Zacharias and Elizabeth. I thank you for the lessons that are learned in that exchange between Zacharias and the angel. I thank you, Lord, for the perspective of Mary that we have here in this first chapter. I thank you, Lord, for her belief. I thank you, Lord, for her response that teaches us so much that when you are speaking to us, it ought to be our response as well to say, let it be. Let it be as you have spoken. Oh, Father, I pray that we would understand that when you speak, even when it doesn't make any sense to us with you, nothing is impossible. Father, I pray we would be a people that operate by faith. That we would come to understand that we are called to trust in you with all of our heart. We're called not to lean on our own understanding. But in all of our ways we're called to acknowledge you. And to realize that you are the one directing our steps. And we see that so clearly here in chapter 1 of Luke. We see Lord that through the lives of these people in Luke chapter 1. You are preparing the way for Christ. Father, I pray that you have done the same thing yet this morning as we've read through and studied this chapter. 
that you are also planting seeds of preparation in the hearts of men and women here. Preparing each one of us for the things that you're going to do in these days ahead. Preparing us to be witnesses that you've called us to be for this one Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your word of truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk in these days ahead. These days, even in fact, leading up to December 25. May we be voices that testify to Jesus Christ in these days ahead. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.